This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Deep within the Auditor General's report last week here in Ontario, it was suggested that nearly all Ontarians uh, who heat their homes with natural gas are going to want to see the cost of cap and trade on their bills. Now, this is because the government's enacted this policy for cap and trade, and it is going to have an impact. It's going to have an impact on the price of gasoline. It's going to have an impact on a lot of things, including uh, natural gas. But apparently, uh, that's not going to happen, or so we're told anyway. Tom Adams joins us, independent energy and environmental consultant, and always a welcome guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. What I'd like here, and I think what a lot of us always like to see, and we've talked about this with hydro rates, and now we're into natural gas, is transparency. And it looks like it's not going to happen here, Tom. Well, um, the, the government's already decided that they don't want to have uh, full transparency. And as the Auditor General found in uh, her report just released, the, the government doesn't even want to um, uh, disclose the, uh, the full cost of the cap-and-trade program. Uh, the, the indirect costs are going to be substantial. Um, uh, the Auditor General says those are things that should be studied. You know, the thought that the government hasn't worked the details on this is, uh, you know, I, I think pretty indicative of where they're at. Well, so we have estimates, and, and I'm told that it's probably going to cost about an extra five bucks a month uh, in, in my bill, and, and that's the average bill, but that's going to vary, I guess, from consumer to consumer. But it's going to be, for those who are not aware, maybe you don't, don't look at it, you just look at the bottom line of the bill, it's going to be included as a delivery charge, uh, which is really kind of skating around the issue here, isn't it? Well, yeah, it, like it's it's another tax uh, on electricity, and um, uh, I, I think you know part of the, the I mean, the, the government kind of foisted the uh, the implementation of the uh, of the this uh, non disclosure of the cost of the cap and trade program off to the Ontario Energy Board to deliver uh, the bad news. Um, you know, so there's a there's a ruling by the Ontario Energy Board that the gas utilities won't be including the uh, the cost of this new tax as a line item on the bill. It'll be hidden elsewhere. You, you, I mean, you, you will be able to um, search through the utilities' websites and be able to identify it if you're if you're good at uh, following the the P in those kinds of um, complex regulatory disclosures. But th- that's. I think that's really the, the, the government's preferred approach. They, they don't want they, they want the uh, uh, you know the talking points about Canada, you know Ontario being a leader in the world and saving us from global warming. But they, um, the costs of it, they don't want those costs to be in the customer's face. Um, uh, and so it's just better to slide them in uh, across the bottom, uh, hidden in the delivery charge. There's a lot of other stuff uh, that's buried in that delivery charge that, <laughs> that you know, I think a lot of people would be alarmed about as well. Um, uh, it, but th- this is just going to be more uh, uh, icing on that cake, uh, although, you know, it's going to be difficult for people to parse out the pieces. I'm interested in the process uh, about how that was determined, uh, that it was going to be just included in delivery charge, Tom, because the government's excuse here is, well, the Ontario Energy Board is an arm's length uh, uh, operation. We can't really tell them what to do. But we do know this. 
is that the OEB actually got feedback from 80 stakeholder groups about whether or not they should do this or separate it out. 75 of the 80 said separate it out so people have an understanding of what's going on, but the decision was made not to do it. you got to wonder who made the decision and what kind of influence they were under. Yeah, you know, just kind of looking big picture at this claim that the Ontario Energy Board is an independent agency, you know, um, uh, the government just repeats that all the time, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, uh, but, the, but the facts say something different. When the, the government was looking for talking points on how to, uh, uh, you know, deal with the proposal for an Energy East pipeline coming through Ontario, um, uh, they they got the Ontario Energy Board to do a, a an inquiry into this thing. Well, like there's nowhere in the Ontario Energy Board's um, legal mandate that gives them any authority with respect to these interprovincial pipelines. Um, uh, so you know the, the government just sent them off to go do stuff that really doesn't seem to be consistent at all with the legal mandate. Same thing. The government just announced that they're doing a. a an inquiry into the cost of uh, road fuels in northern Ontario. Again, something that the Ontario Energy Board has no legal business involved in. Government sent them an order, and they're off doing it. So this whole thesis that the Ontario Energy Board is an arm's-length agency, they they don't do, they're not uh, beholden to the government, whatnot, that that just doesn't, it's not consistent with with the facts of, of uh, how the Ontario Energy Board's been prioritizing its work. So, uh, you know, I, I think in, when, when you see the actual real-life work of the Ontario Energy Board, it really is just an extension of the Ministry of Energy. Um, but they're uh, arm's it, length when it suits their purposes. Yeah, well, it, it's arm's length for the purposes of the, of, of the press releases yeah. when uh, they're announcing, uh, you know, decisions that, uh, that, that the government thinks that they, you know, are not going to be so popular, like hiding the cost of the cap-and-trade program, burying it on the delivery charge of your natural gas bill. What about this idea, too, because of, you know, the criticism that's, and the opposition parties are doing this, but I think consumer groups are involved in this as well. Uh, that and, and the auditor, of course, wants to do this. So Ms. Lissick was on the show last week, but it, like this was kind of buried in the report, Tom. I don't know if you saw it at first blush uh, when we were looking over the report from uh, from the Auditor General last week. But uh, I guess now people are starting to read some of the fine print and, and coming up with this. So she's suggesting that this be separated out and be there as a line item so we can understand that. So the OEB says that they're going to hold hearings into this. They already did, and they already got feedback. So I don't. This this sounds like they're just going over their same steps again. Yeah, I, this is this is the Ontario Energy Board um, uh, replying to the specific recommendation um, uh, from the Auditor General, um, and and there's a situation where you know the the Ontario Energy Board has already issued its decision. Um, the, the utilities are um, the the natural gas utilities are out there implementing that decision. The cap and trade program. You know, starts up January one um, uh, of this year, but you know, I, I, my sense is that the that the government's feeling the heat on this, and um, uh, you know, more and more people are complaining about hidden taxes showing up in their natural gas bill. 
um, <laughs> Lord knows we've got enough hidden taxes on our electricity bills. You know, the, the no, it's, it's going to be on our gas bill. I mean, like our, our fuel bills as well now, because it's going to have an impact on that too, sure, Tom. Sure, sure. So you know, the, you know, more hidden taxes, more places. Um, uh, so you know, customers are complaining about that. The government's response to these kinds of concerns is, oh, we're going to do more consultation. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, it's hard to argue against that unless you notice the pattern where the consultation is all about justifying decisions that they've already taken. We see this over and over again. When, when, they, when the government first announced their uh, consultation back in 2015 for their proposed cap-and-trade program, it was... You know, they said right in their consultation uh, um, uh, announcement that, look, we're doing this, um, uh, and uh, uh, what we're consulting about is um, uh, your views on alternative approaches for us to do this, these, you know, these climate change taxes on you, um, uh, and we, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll take submissions, but it, it wasn't. There was there was never any any indication that the government was really planning to listen to people about how much people were willing to um, uh, uh, bear as an extra cost, um, or how the money would be utilized, or or any of that stuff. You know, it was the 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 key decisions had already been taken and. I, you know, I, my sense around what's going on now is the same kind of story. We're, or we'll have more consultation, but we, you know, they've decided what the outcome is. Pretty much have, uh, and and the OEB, you know, doing their little tap dance around here says. Uh, they want to assess the reasonableness of the cost consequences. Tom, haven't we been talking about the, re- the, the the consequences of these increases on utility bills for about the last year and a half now? I mean, this is piling on to put this on to, to our natural gas bill, plus our fueling bills, and on top of what we were already facing with hydro. Uh, you got to wonder just what the consequences are. We already know that. People aren't going to be able to afford to pay their utility bills. Well, I, I mean, the the extent of these the impacts, you know, is something that 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 should be studied. Um, uh, we know. I mean, there. Do you trust the Ontario Energy Board to do it? Well, it, it, yeah, I mean that, that that's that's an important question, you know. Um, uh, but but the auditor general makes a point several times actually in her report, arguing that. Um, uh, that there needs to be better analysis, better disclosure. She points out uh, one, one of the really troubling findings is that the, the, uh, uh, to the extent that the government has done uh, economic assessments of what is going to be the ultimate cost impacts on customers of these various programs around climate change, they were uh, uh, all this analysis was conducted after the decisions were taken to go into the cap and ter- trade program, after they'd already signed up with this with this whole scheme, you know, a, a scheme that has Ontario businesses shipping a lot of money to California and Quebec to buy emission allowances from them and all kinds of other crazy stuff. So it, it's uh, it, the the. the that's a pattern that we've seen before. This yeah, you know what it reminds me of, Tom, is the Green Energy Act. 
exactly. where they jumped into that, exactly. and then and then a couple of years after that, it's like, whoa, we didn't see that coming. We didn't think that was going to happen. We didn't we didn't understand that consequence. The Auditor General made the identical finding with respect to the smart meter program. Remember when she said, uh, you know, that the government didn't do any analysis of the cost benefits of uh, of the smart meter program so long after the thing was already done. So you're expecting, I mean, we expect governments to do research. We expect them to, to do full disclosure. We expect them to know the good, the bad, and the ugly of any program before they implement it. But it seems like these guys just kind of write it on the back of an envelope, and then they deal with the consequences later. you you, you got to wonder, well, you know, of course, it, like it's, it's terrible management practice to do the analysis after you take the initiative. Um, but why would they do that? You know, it really begs the question, you know, because I mean, you would think that just for self-preservation purposes, um, uh, any kind of self-respecting government would want to, you know, know what the potential downsides were. They would like to, uh, you know, understand where their vulnerabilities were, um, uh, what, what, what the upsides and downsides of a particular initiative might be before they undertook the initiative. I mean, that's the reason you do this kind of analysis. You make your best guesses and forecasts about, you know, costs and benefits and whatnot. But the, the fact that they're not interested, that they're, that they're just driving on with these huge multi-billion dollar, um, you know, potentially transformative initiatives like their, their cap-and-trade program without doing the analysis first, man, that just speaks volumes about how it's ideology running the, you know, r- rather than practicality that's driving the bus down there at Queen's Park. Well, there's two questions. i got about a minute left here. There's two questions that come to mind immediately because of that the, the, the methodology they're using. First of all, is it going to be effective? I don't think they've done the business case to show that it is yet. And secondly, if it is going to have this kind of negative impact on consumers, you know what we're going to be looking at down the road here, Tom, is the government saying, well, we better initiate a subsidy program for some of these people that are going to be hard done by, and that's going to cost even more money. Well, you know, we, we've already seen that with uh, their um, uh, program to subsidize electric vehicles. Sure. Uh, you know, they, they put out a subsidy to in, encourage everybody to switch to electric vehicles. Consumers turned thumbs down, even with the subsidy. They didn't want to buy the electric vehicles. Um, uh, and the government's response to that is, well, the subsidy just not big enough. You know, so, it, it, like, there's no sense from these people that, um, uh, you know, if, if, if their plans are not working out, that that's an indication that there's something wrong with the plan. No, that just means that the you know, plan needs to be reinforced. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Bullying in Hamilton Public Schools seems to be getting worse. The latest annual survey of the school climate shows just over 40% of elementary students say they've been bullied or harassed by other students. The uh, high school number is not quite as high, but still troubling nonetheless. Todd White is the chairman of the board for uh, the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, and he's also the trustee for Ward 5, of course, and joins us on the Bill Keller Show to discuss the numbers. Todd, how are you doing this morning? Very well. Good morning, Bill. Good. Glad, glad you had some time to talk about this with you. These are uh, rather troubling numbers. Yeah, they're actually quite high. Usually, as you were just describing, the elementary numbers this past uh, survey shows about 40%, uh, almost double 
the secondary levels, and it's actually usually the reverse trend. As students get older, the numbers seem to increase. So this is one that's definitely leaving us uh, uh, very concerned and, and as a result paying a lot of attention to the, to, to the results. First of all, who did the survey? We're mandated through the, through the ministry that every uh, year we survey half of our students and then the next year we survey the other half, so uh, half the schools every, every year. Uh, so we compare the results and we track them over the, over the years, and this is where we've seen the increase. Um, but we're actually talking about going above and beyond that with our new strategic direction of positive culture and well-being focused on our students and staff. Uh, we're talking about actually potentially doing this survey every year for our students and and increasing the, the language and follow-up questions in the surveys to make sure we have a better understanding of what's happening in our schools. Well, this is what I, I when I saw the story, I thought, well, this has got to be extremely troubling, even more so for you guys, because you've just uh, adopted and, and, and enriched this policy. And, and clearly these numbers indicate that, I guess, you can't, it's it's just about time to get started on this then. Well, yeah, and I, I'm not sure if it's a coincidence, but, you know, and, and actually I believe it's not, because when we went in and surveyed our entire system as we created our new direction, um, we knew that positive culture and well-being was becoming a problem. Uh, in fact, more so much that we put it as our first priority of five. Um, so this is this is where we need to give it that increased attention, and and the, but the numbers are, are definitely disturbing and and need to be addressed as soon as we can. So already we have in the works uh, efforts to to improve these surveys, start looking at how we can align resources behind these problems, because ultimately we need to solve it, um, and we need to be doing something different than what we've done in the past. I want to ask you. I'm not trying to diminish the numbers here, but quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. I think that this is disturbing, and we need to be talking about these. But are you satisfied with the survey? Because oftentimes uh, the, the way questions are phrased uh, can have an impact on how they're answered. Yeah, my, my, my personal opinion on the survey is, is not, not overly impressed. We've seen the same type of survey um, pretty much every year since I've been a trustee, so I'm sure it, it predated that for a number of years as well. And uh, I think they need to be more thorough. Um, it is a ministry-mandated initiative. I think we need to look at what are the questions that the ministry um, force us to ask and start looking at the questions that we can ask in addition to those or to complement those. Because, once again, to understand or ask students, do, have you been bullied this school year? And the answer is, you know, yes in 40% of cases. I have a number of follow-up questions <laughs> that we need to well, sure. better understand. And, and once again, that's a system number two. What about what's happening at our local school? So the school around your corner, is that 20%? Is that 60%? And that's going to really influence your school improvement plan at that particular school, depending on what the number is. So we need to get a better understanding than just a snapshot every second year of, of our schools that's a, that throw out a number, whether it's 20%, 40%, or 60%. The survey needs to tell us a lot more than that. You mentioned that the half the schools are surveyed every year. Is that is that right? Correct. Okay. Do you know which schools? Um, not not. I can't name them off the top of my head. But essentially, it is a variety of elementary and secondary schools each and, and year. Would it be one particular area? In other words, uh, no, when you no, look it, at these numbers, does this reflect uh, the downtown? Does it reflect Hamilton no. Mountain, or is it a combination of no, everything? So it's a variety of board wide. Okay. okay. So there's no one area that you actually specify in when you do these surveys. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so part of the new initiative is we want to see this broken down by school. We want to see stronger follow-up questions. We want a better analysis of what this means. And then that's only the first part. The next part is once you have the answers to those questions is how do you align the proper resources and plans behind that? 
Um, but you're not going to choose and, and invest in the proper uh, programs if you don't understand the problem to begin with. So there's a whole, whole number of, of layers here that need to be addressed. One of the other elements to this, and, and it was one of the questions, I guess actually there were a couple of questions about this, is uh, has this been reported? Uh, and, and again, that's always a follow-up because every time we do surveys about something like bullying, um, oftentimes uh, what we're told a lot of the time, Todd, is that look at a lot of the stuff that goes on, people don't even report. So, the, I mean, as bad as these numbers may be, uh, it might even be pro- a problem that's worse than we th- it appears on this, on this survey. Well, and that's right, and and that's the follow-up question that would first come to my mind is, of the 40% that feel they've been bullied or harassed, uh, was there a caring adult that was available to address it? And if you brought it forward, was your was your concern addressed? And and this is where we can start to break it down and understand what resources we have. So is it an awareness issue that we need to help students? Is it a, a support that we provide staff to better align our, our staffing supervision? Uh, is it a particular area within the school? Or even more so as we... Uh, as we go throughout the years, is it becoming a digital bullying issue with, uh, obviously, the digital world that we live in and online bullying, we're seeing an increase. So we really need to pinpoint where the where the trouble is before we can address it effectively. Well, it may be beginning, and I may, this may be a little difficult, I guess, with, with some of the kids answering these surveys, uh, but a definition of what they mean by bullying. In other words, you know, what specifically happened? I mean, that, that's got to be a, a part of this conversation, too. Yeah, and, and not to help matters, we, that some of the linguistics have changed over the years in those questions. So the terminology, I think at one point asked if you were bullied, um, then it evolved into bullied or harassed. And that's not an excuse. It's just, once again, we need a baseline, a common indicator each year to better understand uh, the results. Because if we're, we're going to compare results, we need to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And the other element to this, too, is uh, was there a, a caring adult? I'm, I'm paraphrasing here about mm-hmm. what that question was. Uh, when and something like this, is there an adult in my school who really cares about me? And you gave them an option here. Always, often, sometimes, rarely, or never. Uh, 28% said always. 27% said often. Uh, that's a little more than 50% uh, when, when you start looking at those, those numbers. Are you satisfied with that? No, no, and we raised that last year. That was a we've actually added another category. Once again, kind of skewing the baseline. But, but the the point was last year we had roughly the same number. Just over fifty percent felt that a caring adult was available. Um, but that's troubling. That's something that we need to look at as well because students obviously would want to look toward uh, a mentor, a caring adult, a, a teacher that they feel comfortable with. And if and if that's not available, then then of course we know that they're not going to report those incidents of bullying or, or harassment. So, so that's a big piece and, and another reason why we put positive culture and well-being as our number one priority. And, and, yeah, when you look at the number, and again, you've, you've seen enough reports and enough statistics over your time as, as a, a trustee here uh, to know that they can be interpreted in different ways here. And I see only about a little more than 50% uh, feel that there was a, a reliable adult around. Does that mean that there wasn't one around, or does that mean that the students don't have that trusting level in, in the adults that are around? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's another piece where we need to better better understand the question and the results because uh, it can be phrased in different ways, and as a result, the, the information can, can, uh, can be skewed. But, uh, but once again, that's only half of, the, half of the issue. The other half is, is then trying to solve the problems and align the resources. And uh, that's the big question, because 
we can identify we have a problem. I think we've done that, even though we could enhance the survey. The next question is, show me how all of the resources, professional development, uh, extra supports are put into place. Is there a communication a- aspect of this as well? Uh, the number's down in high school. It's, well, it's, it's, it's not as high as 40%. It's about 26%, which if I understand correctly, was this about the same as it was the last time you did the right, survey. Right. Mm-hmm. But is, is that because maybe high school students are more articulate and better able to, to explain themselves than, than elementary school kids? And in, in other words, they, they understand what's going on. They have, maybe have a, a much more clear definition of what bullying is. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's potentially a theory. But the other number uh, that you were just talking about, having a caring adult available, um, that number actually decreases at the secondary level slightly as students become more independent and the schools become larger. So they feel that there aren't as many caring adults for whatever reason at the secondary level, yet the bullying number is lower at the secondary level. So normally you see a correlation the other way. So this is one that has us definitely putting uh, a lot more thought into to these results. Well, and there's the concern, because when we've seen some of the, the stories that have made national headlines about bullying, especially at the, at the high school level, uh, you find most of the time uh, the overwhelming majority of the cases seem to be not reported at all. Uh, so there's a, a sense of denial that goes on here that, hey, or, or they, they think, hey, I can handle this myself. Uh, you said that that streak of independence that seems to happen at that in those teenage years actually can be a factor here. That's right. And I think we spoke about this probably about a year ago, and we had mentioned, you know, just walking to campus like McMaster, for instance, and seeing all of the student supports available to you. You know, do we have that at our secondary school level? Do you walk the hallways and see the posters and the communication on where you can turn uh, for help? And is that help effective? Is it, is it welcoming? Can you walk into a guidance counselor's office or a teacher that, that, that you trust and respect that they're available to you? You know, th- those are the type of issues, and, and are we doing it effectively at the secondary level? We have that new app, and we've discussed this in the past, called Tip-Off, where you can now anonymously report bullying, and uh, the principal and uh, staff would be notified. And we found that an effective tool, especially at the secondary level. So what do you do with this information? I I mean, parents that are seeing these numbers and hearing our conversation this morning are going to be concerned about this. And and, and the obvious question here is, what's the board do about this? So we need to, and this is where we're very, very adamant this coming year, we need to break this down school by school. So principals should be meeting with their school councils, looking at these results school by school, embedding in their school improvement plans a way to address bullying, because it's not going to be the same in each of our schools and in each of the areas as you you described earlier. So we need to understand it from a school by school perspective, understand where it's occurring, what resources might be lacking or require improvement, and then take a really strategic approach to, in, to, to better improving these numbers each, each year that moves forward. So, so there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of initiatives that we can take uh, to get to the bottom of this, but a lot of it is the whole school community participating. So whether it's parents, uh, teachers, students, um, all of our staff, it's really a, a measured approach where everyone needs to be in tune with, with these issues. What, what kind of approaches do you take on something like this? Does this include staff training? Uh, resources obviously have to be part of this, but at the same time, uh, once a student approaches one of those concerned adults or one of those trusted adults, uh, the onus is on the adult to be able to act appropriately and accordingly. 
That's right. And that goes back to communication, making sure that we communicate to our staff the expectations and the resources available. We need to make sure that we have the professional development aligned uh, behind the initiatives. Uh, we need to make sure that students have the information because if they don't know where to turn, then they're not going to even make it there. So, so there's a number of pieces that all, all need to align uh, along the way. I've heard from parents, and I know you have over the years as well, Todd, that when we talk about bullying, and, and you've got numbers here, but I mean just the, the concept of it, and oftentimes the, the, the kids that have been victimized by this will go and, and at some point finally go and talk to their parents about it. But the complaint I hear an awful lot is that, well, you know what, the school did nothing. How do you respond to that? Yeah, and that's frustrating. That's always an answer that, that, that I never, uh, never accept. If we hear those types of stories, that's where we want to have those concerns brought forward. You know, speak, make sure that your classroom teacher knows. Make sure your principal knows. Uh, if you're still not satisfied, talk to your trustee or your superintendent. Because from my position, and this has always been my position, which is you deserve an explanation. And if there is a problem, you deserve to have a plan in place to address it. And if there isn't a plan in place, then, then you're not going to see the results that, that we could deliver. Is there a protocol that, uh, that staff are told to follow? Oh, absolutely. We have guidelines and supports that we communicate to all schools. But that's something that we're going to need to review and make sure that uh, they align with the issues that we're seeing. We talked earlier in the conversation here about the the new policy and, and, and the uh, the onus on, on this sort of uh, behavior and, 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 and trying to deal with this. Uh, when you look at these numbers now, Todd, does that policy need to be tweaked, or are you confident that what the board has adopted now are going to fit and, and deal with these concerns? Well, I, the policy I don't think necessarily needs to be tweaked. I think the information and how we process it needs to be tweaked. Uh, and that's the real heart of the issue is is we can create policy and throw more policy and procedure at, at these type of issues. But I think it's that it's that strong understanding of the issues at, at hand, uh, looking at the data, understanding it, understanding where the problems are occurring. Because you can put the supports in place, but if you haven't broken it down school by school, issue by issue, then, then it's a bit of a shot in the dark. How long is it going to take you to get that information, to, to, to break this down school by school, so you can act on, on that kind of hard information? So this year we're, we're starting, um, but our, we'll have a new student survey this year where we want to create a baseline so we have standard questions, um, clearer questions, uh, as a result, better data that we're able to collect that we can implement year after year. Um, so this year we're really going to start to build that baseline, uh, work to getting a better understanding. Uh, we'll see those results uh, probably this time next school year, and then we'll be able to put the, the efforts uh, or the, the measures in place to solve some of those problems. But already this year with last year's data, we're going to try to break it down as best as we can. Um, we do have a number, number of other student voice initiatives that we hold throughout the year to get student feedback, so we'll be incorporating our new approach along the way throughout this entire school year and then school years moving forward. But uh, in going through that process, you'd suggested that you'd like to see some modifications to the questions being asked. That's right. So now's the time, exactly, where we're going to be modifying those questions, making sure that that survey, which usually goes out in the spring, uh, closer to the end of the school year, making sure that that survey has, has been reviewed by trustees, by staff, by by. Uh, everyone throughout the system to make sure that we've captured what we're hoping to capture in terms of the, the questions, and then at that point, um, sending the survey out and then, of course, collecting the data. Do you have access to, uh, to provincial data on this to know whether or not uh, this is a, a, a Hamilton-only problem, or are these uh, very relevant to what's going on in the rest of the province? Are they close yeah. to, the, to the provincial numbers? 
And, and I, I was thinking about that this morning, actually, uh, uh, as I was looking over some of the information. For other issues, when you get to, for instance, student success and, and academic achievement, you have EQAO where you can compare school by school, board by board, uh, and get an understanding of some of the issues. Mm-hmm. For these issues, we've never been presented with a report on uh, bullying at other school boards. There is some statistics, I'm sure, that are available to directors and other senior staff um, that do have a snapshot. But once again, that would be board by board. And, and I think those numbers sometimes, sometimes can be problematic because, once again, it's more of a school-to-school understanding. But that would you, those numbers, I think, would be probably very helpful to you to understand exactly where you are in relation to what other boards are doing. I mean, is this a province-wide problem? or uh, I understand you want to break it down within your board to say, okay, what's going on in the East End, North End, West End, all that sort of stuff. That's good. But it's it's also I think important to know exactly where you stand vis-a-vis uh, what happens in the in the rest of the boards too. I mean because that may involve you know we could be having a discussion there about provincial policies that that might be able to be helpful to all boards instead of just yours. Exactly, and I think that's why the ministry mandates the surveys because we do report the information back to the ministry, and that influences their policies. But I think as, as yeah, but- you're suggesting, there's a real learning opportunity to create a baseline between boards. So if our neighboring boards have numbers that are half of ours, well, what are they doing that we're not doing? And those are the questions that we should be asking if, if we had the data um, um, available to us. But, but the data is there. This is what I don't understand. It's sitting in somebody's office in Queen's Park, I guess, at the Ministry of right. Education. And, and you're right, they do this for the province-wide testing. Uh, they release the data on a province-wide basis so the comparators can be made. I, I can't understand why they don't do it. They, they mandate these surveys and then they just keep the information to themselves instead of sharing it to you so that you can pick up the phone and call somebody in Halton or Peel or someplace else and say, hey, how do you guys handle this? Mm-hmm. You can't have that conversation because you don't know the numbers. That's right. And I think that that's probably the next step to this issue, which is understanding not just what's happening at our board level, but what's happening in the province. And, and once again, we want to learn from each other. So what's happening in Niagara, if they have better results than us or vice versa, what are they doing that we're not doing? And what is it about the culture or environment in that board that's different from ours? And, and those are pieces where we can better understand. But I think you've just identified another issue with the surveys, which is not just the questions within HWDSP, but what's happening across the province. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, city of Hamilton is another step closer to solidifying its promised transgender and gender nonconforming protocol. Now, this is the result of a story that we brought you some time ago. Uh, a local transgender woman filed an official complaint to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario last October after she was barred by a security guard from using the women's bathroom at the McNabb Street bus terminal downtown Hamilton. And uh, this is the result of that. There was a lawsuit, and there were a number of uh, things that I think went into the settlement, but this was one of them. Joining us to talk about uh, the uh, the protocol and uh, how we're going to move forward on this is Deirdre Pike, senior planning senior planner rather with the uh, Social Planning and Research Council here in Hamilton. Deirdre, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for calling. Listen, I know you're not a lawyer, um, but mm-hmm. <laughs> let me ask you something. The fact that they even have to develop a policy was was the policy not already outlined uh, in the Human Rights Code in 2012? Well, the policy is there, but I think that, um, you know, each city uh, needs to come up with its own way of responding. And uh, um, 
I don't think that the policy that I, I don't think the city of Hamilton has ever responded with any uh, strong uh, and clear policy on uh, LGBTQ um, and particularly trans inclusion. And uh, and in other communities, uh, you know, particularly uh, Toronto, Vancouver, Ottawa, there are some really, really solid policies. And uh, I think the city, uh, you know, unfortunately didn't step up when it could have. And um, because a, a of a negative situation that has occurred and the need for a complaint to the Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, now they're responding, and, um, you know, what we're going to need to see is is the response uh, strong enough for the situation. Why do they think they're dragging their heels here in Hamilton? I think that uh, there are very many people in this city, uh, the majority of people for sure, of course, uh, that just don't really understand the reality of the lives of trans people, um, the there is a reluctance. I mean, we hear it, we've heard it a lot lately in the news uh, from all kinds of different uh, political leaders of all different ages and stripes. Uh, still, um, have a lot of ignorance when it comes to um, the realities of LGBTQ people and their inclusion, and so um, they need to. Uh, you know, so they they just don't have an interest, really, frankly, it seems like. And uh, in the work that I do around training, it becomes clear to me over and over again that um, uh, that there's just a, a lack of conversation about this. Uh, people aren't tuning in maybe to your show and other places where this is being talked about. Um, and uh, we just really need to uh, to bump up the, the response. And so if elected officials aren't hearing that this is an issue from, from their constituents, you know how that works. It's not going to be something they pay attention to. So even our city councillors, you know, here we have Aidan Johnson is the one who's usually, who's quoted with this because he's the one who's responsible for the LGBTQ advisory committee meeting. Mm-hmm. But it's every councillor that needs to know about this and respond. And these city councillors haven't taken uh, time to have positive space training. A few have, um, and certainly not trans training. So um, and to me, when I look over the draft policy, this is what's really lacking. Um, there's lots of uh, words in there about, you know, different posts that will be made and um, how people are to respond. But I don't see anything that, that ensures that uh, the thousands of employees at the city of Hamilton uh, that need training will, will actually receive it. Well, that's a problem, uh, and, and I'm glad you had some time to talk about this today because you have, uh, just to mention, that you've been imbe- involved in LGBTQ uh, tr- training in, in, in other capacities, and I know you've done a lot of work with Hamilton Police Service over the last couple of years on this. How does one approach a problem like this when there is clearly a lack of information about what the real issues are? Uh, in other words, it's one thing to suggest, okay, we need to develop a protocol, but if they don't understand what the issues are and why the protocol needs to be there, you got a big problem. That's right. And I, so, you know, I, I presume, I, I, who would be writing this protocol? I guess city staff um, would be presenting it to councillors and which staff. And, you know, I'm sure that they're from the Equity and Inclusion Office, I would presume, and they have uh, a more solid background and training. However, as it, the process would go forward, it would be presented to these councillors who don't really understand it, and that's going to be... Uh, that's going to be a, a serious problem. In the training that I did do recently um, this year with the Hamilton Police Services Board, uh, that ended up including um, Mayor Fred Eisenberger and uh, Councillor Ferguson. Um, 
unfortunately, not all that, that uh, Terry Whitehead didn't come to that training. Uh, so, um, so he doesn't have that information, but that's two of the 15 voices that around the table that have at least had um, LGBT positive space training. Yeah, but I, I don't like not, I don't like those numbers. I don't like them at all. I was very disappointed that it wasn't even the full complement of the of the council members on the police services board that came. That was very disappointing, and um, and then uh, you know, could, and then nothing uh, subsequently has been been completed so how and and even within those conversations you know there are initial conversations there are general conversations it's not specific to the trans there are specific pieces of course in my training specific to the trans community as not a trans person i think that they're they're not listening to the right people they're not asking the the right questions and um uh, and i think it's not going to it, it makes for a less robust policy for sure i'm you know i'm i'm looking at the city of toronto's policy right now and it's so uh, different than what I see emerging just in the bits and pieces that I see coming out uh, so far. Um, I think I'm, I'm, dis- I'm I don't want to be disappointed already because I haven't seen the full thing, but I'm concerned that it just may not be robust enough to have the change. And again, without verbal conversations and training, I don't think people will really understand. There will still, there can be a policy and you can put signs up that this washroom is, uh, you know, is gender neutral and you will still have staff people, you know, directing people to to washrooms with inappropriate language or or making fun of people. It's it's clear that those are the realities in our communities. You now you've seen the Toronto policy, and and, and in fairness, the, the 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 policy here in Hamilton is a draft policy. So there's there's room for modification if somebody so desires to do that. We don't even know if that's going to happen yet. But what's Toronto doing right that Hamilton is not including in this? Well, I, what I hope that Hamilton does have, which, uh, which I see even just in the um, introductions of this policy, are, are solid uh, definitions about the difference between gender identity and gender expression. I think this is a very common, uh, this is a problem that people don't understand that difference when I, when I speak to people. Um, and, the, and, the, and where people are at in terms of their... Um, their identity as being trans, uh, there is still a lot of confusion with people about whether or not um, it matters whether someone's had surgery. This becomes a big issue, and the Toronto policy makes has some really good language around the process of gender transition, which people just don't understand, that there's social transitions. It's not all physical, and that concerns people. There's just, honestly, Bill, it's, it is complicated, and it is um, because it pertains to a small portion of our population, I just don't think people are giving it the serious attention that it really needs. And, well, and, well uh, listen, and that was yeah. part of what they called the bathroom law debate. That w- and you and I oh, talked exactly. about that at some point some time ago, that, uh, you know, if, if, if there was no surgery, then how can a person actually identify as? as, as and, which is showing a total lack of ignorance about the issue here, but that seemed to be the basis for the law. That's right. And, and as if um, as if this only applies to adults, by the way. I mean, the the reality is the numbers of of, of children who um, I mean, people do identify with their gender early on, and so this isn't about um, while there are adults who transition later in life. Uh, the reality is the the sooner we um, have responses for our young people, the better it is, uh, and the lower the the more chance there will be to lower the suicide rates that are over um, half of trans people 
uh, have attempted suicide. Um, well, almost half in Ontario already um, before they've had suicide attempts. So this is, um, you know, it's bigger than a bathroom bill. It's not about adults going to bathrooms and threatening each other. This is about people's lives and providing the supports that are necessary uh, from from the get-go. And we know our genders. By the time we're about uh, three, we're solid on this. And so um, what we're looking for are are really solid responses at all levels of people's lives. Deirdre, how do you approach uh, an issue like this? Given, well, let's talk about the elephant in the room. What seems to be a, a growing level of intolerance. Uh, some few say it's fueled by the, the recent U.S. election, but, but there seems to be this plethora of of, of anger and, and and discontent and disrespect uh, for uh, for people in the LGBTQ community, uh, for for ethnic groups, or for so many other like this, which which has certainly got to be obstacle one if you're going to approach something like this. Hmm. I think that that uh, that normally these conversations had been silenced and uh, you know whispered about, and they certainly existed, and somehow which maybe gave us a false sense of security that maybe we'd overcome some of those uh, those myths. That's right. I mean, I, I you know it it is always uh, upsetting to me, really, at at so many different levels when I hear people in training say, you know, start the conversation. You know, we haven't even really gotten into the training, and I hear people say, I don't really think this is necessary. You know, my uh, you know, my wife gets her hair done by a gay uh, hairdresser, and my son's best friend is a lesbian. You know, do we have to do this? Because everything seems quite great out there. You people can get married now. And this kind of ignorance that only popped up out loud occasionally before is now coming to the surface. So maybe these allies, and I, I mean, I think that this is there's good intent. There's good intent among people, uh, many, many people, who... Um, want to ensure uh, better, safer, healthier communities for everyone, including LGBTQ people, and and really want to believe it's a good place. What I want is for allies to to really recognize that it's not a great place. That there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, we couldn't the the city advisory committee um, lacks. Uh, voices from the trans community. It's mostly uh, voices of lesbian, gay, bisexual people. Um, and and even that shows the level of fear and, uh, and lack of safety that trans people feel to even be involved in their community. And uh, this is why it's so important that we continue to, to have this conversation, but that the city really responds, um, like I said, in a, in a way that... Uh, that has not just um, solid accountability, but but compassion and some real understanding uh, for what this community is facing. Well, because, and again, I, I'm not going to attack the policy yet, but I mean, the bare bones of it seem to suggest that, okay, we're going to put signs up uh, so that they'll feel comfortable. I, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but it just seems as if they're taking half measures here, because that's not going to do anything to remove the stigma that's going to be felt uh, in workplaces, in schools, uh, you introduced us to a, to a, a, a transgendered uh, lady last year. Remember, she came on the program here, and we heard some mm-hmm. horrific stories about the about the kind of discrimination that goes on in the workplace and and in the mm-hmm. community at large, and just going to buy a, you know a, a jug of milk or something like that. The sort of things that happen, the looks they get, the comments that are made, and things of this nature. 
And it's just as bad in the school system. We just had a, a session just a few minutes ago from Todd White from the Board of Education talking about the huge increase in the amount of bullying that goes on at the elementary level. How much of that is involved in, in, in sexual identity? We don't know that yet, but that's a number I'd like to know. Uh, it just seems as if there's an awful lot of, of discussion that needs to be had, and it's just not happening here. That's right. That's right. And, the, and uh, you know, slapping up a sign is just not enough. Uh, and so that those, those terrible, uh, unsafe uh, conditions will continue in workplaces when, uh, when young people or people of any age that uh, are um, expressing their gender differently or do identify as trans access, for example, recreation uh, facilities, and there's a sign that says, you know, washrooms are gender neutral. You know, at Westmount, for example, is a great example of a new facility that has really wonderful uh, gender neutral facilities for changing. Uh, I was up there myself not long ago, and, and I could hear people outside one of the, the change rooms that is the gender neutral one saying, why would people go in there? What's that all about? And and staff don't know how to answer that unless they've had proper training. And like I said, really, I think it needs to start if the city council is the body that's going to be making the decision on this policy, then every one of those councillors should have had training by now. And that, to me, is where this, uh, where leadership is really failing in this conversation. Because well, how can we expect the, uh, the thousands of staff of the city to... Um, to undergo uh, training, I mean, it's not the, the, the facility, they're not making the facility uh, for this to even happen. It does cost money and it does take time, but this, we're talking about lives and they are worth the money and they are worth the time. Is there a concern and a feeling in, in some aspects and some elements of the community and probably in the workforce, Deirdre, that, that, well, come on, we've done enough for those people already. Well, you know, what are we even bothering with this for? They've got the Human Rights Commission. You know, they've, they've, it's been identified like this. Just, you know, it's, it's like saying to, to some women, I've t- you know, when we talk about the glass ceiling and, well, c- you got the vote for God's sakes. What else do you want? You know, you're equal. Uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 that, you know, back off. We don't need this conversation anymore, and which maybe stems from the fact that they feel uncomfortable having that conversation. Absolutely. Uh, the second slide in my presentation has a title, Is This Really Necessary? And it's dedicated to, uh, and it happened to be a police officer at that point, but it happens in many, many sessions that, as I said, people just don't think this is important. You know, we already, and then they confuse it by saying, Lesbian and gay people can get married. That has nothing to do with trans identity. People don't even understand the difference between sexual orientation and gender. And, and, and so if we can't get those basics down, it's pretty hard to move to the next level. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.